You're listening to Firm Up, the fermented food podcast where we get together every week to discuss anything and everything fermented. We're your hosts, Brandon and Allison, and this is episode 38. Hi, how are you? Hi, good. How are you doing? I'm good. I uh, This morning I, I spent time trying to, to cover a new plot that I'm putting some new uh, vegetables down in, um, and had chickens scratching up my newspaper that I was, I was covering. So I had to, had to run out and go, go do that today, but it was, it was a good busy morning. Yeah, no, it sounds like it. Um, is the weather still good enough to be, are you, are you just doing like root vegetables or, um, what are you planting? Yeah, it's actually, it is going to be for, for root vegetables. And, and I'm kind of doing both, both of trying to kill grass putting newspaper over top of that, then compost kind of a little bit of a lasagna or lazy lasagna gardening of sorts. And then Mm -hmm. putting in uh, some tubers and putting in uh, sunchokes or or Jerusalem artichokes. Are you familiar with those? I am. Yeah, I've had those. They're delicious. I've never grown them myself, but um, it's something that's always been on my list of things to, to do and try. Yeah, I guess they're really, they're, they're native to North America and they, uh, it it is connected with fermentation because I'm planning to do a, a, like a 50 square foot plot of them and they are kind of weedy or they're really hard to get rid of. So I figured I'd put it off in this section in my yard that would really kind of be cut off from going into any other parts of the garden. And they work, uh, they, they, they taste delicious, but eaten in quantities, they can give people a lot of, uh, uh, gas and it's just because they're a nice prebiotic. So uh-huh. there's a lot of things in them that we can't necessarily digest, but that the the bacteria and microbes inside of us can. Um, and so fermentation though, getting a little bit more of that pre-digested, that's, I'm planning to do a, a massive uh, project of, of fer- uh, fermenting those uh, next season if the plot is successful and oh. grows. So awesome. Well, keep us up to date on that. That would be really interesting. Yeah. I'm hoping this winter to get some um, above flower boxes for my backyard and just planting some stuff and seeing if anything grows and then using that for, you know, any type of fermented food. But right now, I mean, it's getting to be the winter season. So it it looks like I'm pretty limited on what I can plant too. You should be, but you could, you could, if you like really wanted to get into it, do some like hoop houses or, or, or different things. Right. I mean, it's like, how cold does it, does it get? It doesn't get that cold in San Diego. It's usually in the winter. I mean, it's mostly at night that you have to be concerned about and you just would throw some blankets over the tops. Um, It doesn't frost here, but the warmest it gets on average is maybe 60 or 70. I mean, it's nice enough during the day. You don't have to wear a winter jacket, but it cools enough. It cools down enough at night that you would need to wear some sort of light North face jacket or something like that just to just to keep you warm. It does cool off pretty fast. It sounds like you could do some of the, like say things that I can plant here in Wisconsin and and grow as a late fall crop. I mean, you could do some broccolis or kales or different things. Are those things that people can garden year round there? Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people with flower boxes, um, you know, homesteading where they have a kale and, um, Oh, what is it? Swiss chard, lots of, uh, like leafy vegetables. Um, but I haven't really seen a lot of people with broccoli or cauliflower, but I'm sure that you can do it. I wonder even cabbage, do some, or do some cabbage, late season yeah. sauerkraut. I mean, I, I would think by those temperatures you'd be able to. Um, yeah, you know. I'll have to experiment. I just haven't really had the, the space, I guess, until recently to try it out. There you go. Now, now you can yeah. start your fermentation garden. I know. I'm actually, I'm pretty excited now that I'm thinking about it. That would be a lot of fun. 
So uh, I might as well jump right in. I think that we had discussed talking about in uh, kind of commercial versus home fermentation and what kind of the, are the differences of that. And I know for myself, when I started doing more research into this, it kind of became and evolved into a little bit more of industrial uh, because as we've talked about before with, with uh, when we're talking about craft beers or, or any kind of artisanal product, that's kind of a different commercial aspect than uh, industrial or factory created ferments, uh, fermented foods or any kind of food in that regard. So it's kind of for myself and what I've been looking at, and you might be looking, have been looking at different things. It's kind of become industry versus home fermentation. And what are the differences? What are the pros and cons of, of each? And, and looking at it that way, is that kind of where you've gone or, yeah, I mean, I kind of um, was looking at it more from the food science perspective of industrial industrialization of fermentation practices and how to keep an industrial fermentation going, continuously making product. Whereas when you're doing home fermentation, you probably just have one batch and then that's the batch and you might save some of it for later, but you're not maybe always making something and trying to get it to have consistent results and all of that. Um, but yeah, I have found that there are great differences between industrialization of fermented foods and home fermentation in the research that I did in the past few days. Yeah. I mean, something that you just, just brought up about, well, for one consistency, uh, obviously if it's a product on a shelf, people want some kind of consistency generally. And, uh, there's, there's a few things again, more artisanal or craft wise that people are more accepting of, of, uh, shifting and changes throughout the season. But in general for large scale production, it's about consistency and giving the consumer the same thing every time that they expect. Right. Uh, and then like the other thing you said about continuous aspect of it, and we can dive into that a little bit more later too, I'm sure, but that continual side of it, like, yeah, when you, when, when things are being fermented with microbes on a regular basis all the time, that seems like it could bring up a lot more challenges. Um, and yeah, cause you have the, the, um, the culture itself, you know, it goes through stages of, um, reproducing and, um, you know, it goes through like a a lag log stationary phase. Like you go through all these fermentation kinetics, but eventually they're going to get worn out if you're continuously using them and fermenting. So somehow you have to have, you know, um, back batches that you can add more bacteria to, um, to keep the fermentation going and viable. If you're doing continuous fermentations, did you find any information regarding that kind of fermentation? Well, I know that especially, well, especially dairy, but other things is, I don't know where all bacteriophages come in, but, um, but that's being one like contaminants. So if, if something is continually being done in one area, then that's creating an environment that other things such as bacteriophages, which you could probably elaborate on a little bit, bit more and describe, um, uh, different things that can cause, cause issue because if there's a continual environment of a certain thing, even if there is sanitization and sterilization throughout that process and in between Still, there's the issue of uh, contamination coming in just because it's a ripe environment for certain other microbes as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just you always have when you're doing industrial fermentations and you're trying to get the consistency the same from batch to batch. Yeah, you can definitely. I'm sure that they run into contamination issues all the time. Cleaning, 
tanks, um, sanitizing, sterilizing, which we've talked in some detail. And, um, I think it was episode 36. Um, but, um, I, I feel as if that's a huge problem and mostly for like the dairy industry, because I, you know, milk itself is such a wholesome, nutritious environment for, you know, us, um, to drink it, but also for bacteria to grow, it has like all the essential sugars that they need. And, um, it's like always the perfect temperature to get all sorts of nasty stuff growing in there that you wouldn't want. Yeah. I mean, because you have to realize that if it's a food source for us, it's also going to be a food source for other things. And some things that aren't even food sources for us are, are excellent food sources for, for different bacteria and yeasts and, and molds. Yeah. And- they have probably have the capability of breaking something that is break, you know, using enzymes to break apart parts of that media to make, to make it into a usable resource, um, that they can use and thrive off of. Yeah. And I just thinking right now is like kind of a, a home versus industrial scale kind of thing is when a person's fermenting at home, they're kind of on a, a, a pristine little island. And even if that island's not completely, completely sterile, uh, uh, and, and people are fermenting and, and they're most likely not going to have a whole lot of things coming on their remote island because there's just not a whole lot of entryways to it. And whereas, whereas industry is, it's really kind of more of a, a large city or urban area where there's all kinds of potential avenues that contaminants or other things can come in uh, because it's just, it's a larger mass of area. And so that's going to be more inviting. More people go to a city than they do to an, an island. Um, and there's just a lot more space and crevices and different things like that. Whereas yes, there are crevices and, and all kinds of things interacting in a person's home. But when a person's doing the same ferment so infrequently compared to an industry, it's just, it's, it's not the same environment in a home kitchen every single day. Whereas some of these industrial places, it's the same environment every single day, all the time. Right. Yeah. And yeah, I can see, you know, going back to, um, and having continuous fermentations, um, that can be a a huge problem, um, with, uh, sanitation and going back to sanitation. I think that's really everything about fermentation involves a little bit of sanitation and, no knowledge of how to keep things clean and preventing types of other harmful bacteria from growing and on and on. Um, but I was curious, um, because I was doing some research and, um, I'm, I didn't know that soy sauce was so, uh, largely produced and I didn't, I don't really know how to make soy sauce, but it kind of, I saw some stuff about it. Um, that dealt with, uh, like large scale fermentations. And now there's like all these artisanal soy sauce companies. Do you know anything about that? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, that, that was kind of one of the things I was looking into as well as, is, um, is soy sauce is a great example of something that's been industrialized on a large scale for a long time. And I, because if we step back and look at, at soy sauce, I mean, it's, it's a product that's been around for a very long time. I mean, it's from, from most likely from China into Japan. And, and we're talking like two to 3000 uh, year old, the basic concept of what soy sauce is. And when it first started, it was with meats and not with a, a, a grain necessarily, but it was using the, uh, the same, um, same fermentation method. And so once that started, it was, I guess, in a lot of ways in, in China as well. It, I don't know at what point it became more of an industrial 
large scale kind of thing, but it, it was much less of something that was done in a home on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. At least it seemed that way. Um, and there probably well, are families that do still make it. Mm-hmm. What, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say, I don't, I, I personally don't really know how they industrial or even home, homemade, homemade soy sauce. How do they even make it? I mean, how do they break down the soybean to, I don't know if you know the answer to that question or do you? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I understand the basic process. I also, uh, I'll put in the show notes, uh, a couple things. One, uh, the main thing that, that helps with, with making soy sauce is aspergillus orzier. And that is going to be the, the, the mold that is, has been, uh, throughout history, it's been captured in the air and it's, it's used to inoculate koji, which is, is aspergillus orzier growing on rice. And then that koji is then used to ferment generally soybeans and mm-hmm. with a lot of, uh, I mean, there's, there's soy based soy sauce and then there's soy based and wheat based uh, soy sauce. So, uh, and most the, like say, I think like the largest in the United States is probably uh Kokemon or, or I, th- I yeah. think, you know, that brand, but one of the major yeah. brands that one has wheat in it. And, um, and tamari is generally how it's referred to in the United States if it's without wheat. Okay. Huh. Interesting. Well, you, um, Koji that's used for the, uh, the mold, uh, mixture that you were talking about. Isn't that the same as when you're making sake? Making sake? Kind of same, yeah. Same premise, same idea. Same premise. It's going to be sake, soy sauce, uh, and, and miso are going to be three main ones that are all start with the aspergillus orzier. And, um, and again, as an interesting side note, and I, I don't have the information right off top, uh, top of my head, but aspergillus orzier that again has been throughout history caught in, in the wild and kind of captured, um, because these different areas had large amounts of it. Again, going back to industry or even just on a small scale, if something is produced a lot, then something is probably going to be in the, in the environment, as we've talked about in previous episodes with, with meat fermentation or otherwise, it's like, if you're in a kind of a, an enclosed space, or if there's enough of it going on in a large space, then that, that aspergillus orzier is going to be around, um, just in the environment. And so, uh, like even outside being able to just capture that and I forget how it's captured, but I do remember that, uh, that, uh, after the Hiroshima bombings, that that was no longer possible in a lot of ways because of the, uh, nuclear after effects of, uh, it kind of wiped out that native environment. Huh, interesting. Uh, and so it's had to be a lot more times laboratory derived, um, even it, 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 changed the tradition in in certain areas. So, so again, that's like drastic environmental changes can drastically change the, the things that are, are fermentable in the environment. But, uh, yeah, I'm sure that that changed the, not only the process of how to make soy sauce, um, but also the overall flavor and quality of the soy sauce. I'm sure people had to get used to it again or adapt their tastes to the new type of soy sauce they were producing. Yeah, I'll try and look that up for a future episode and and uh try and get back and follow up on that and get a little bit more specific stuff on that. But yeah, it was that was something that was just kind of amazed me. I mean, because it, it there's a spergulus in the air in the United Probably States. Everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And there's but there's other strain or I don't know if strains is the proper word, but there's other spergulus that some that 
are not as friendly for us as others. Um, but I remember that, uh, uh, Momofuku, uh, chef David Chang, uh, he was doing, he had been able to catch you just kind of letting meat rot. He was able to catch an aspergillus strain that was native to his environment of sorts. So it wasn't aspergillus orzier as far as I remember, but it was something that he was able to, to, to capture it and then get it tested by microbiologists to figure out that, that, yeah, this is indeed unique and it also can make something taste good. So yeah, that's, that's total sides uh, note for the asparagus, but Koji is something that people can, will generally purchase. They'll, they'll, or, or it's easy enough, especially in the United States, just purchased Koji. So already the asparagus is already growing on the rice. It's already has its little mold fuzziness on it. Mm-hmm. And then, and then using, using that to inoculate the soybeans and then it's, it turns into a mash, uh, mixed like uh, there's the, well, the cooking process of the, the soybeans and then mixing that with the Koji. And then that turns into a mash that then ferments for months. And then it's the liquid that turns into the soy sauce. I see. Huh. Interesting. So it's, a, it's very similar to making sake, except the medium, which it, the, the bacteria and the mold and stuff are growing on. That's what it sounds like. So, yeah, because huh, what's that's the, really interesting. What's the difference with sake? Um, it's only I think it's only the rice. They use rice instead of soybeans. Okay. All right. I think the process itself is very similar. I mean, I know when they're making sake, it comes when the um when the, they have the koji, it's on this huge uh flat I don't want to call it a table because it has a lip to it where the liquid sits and the mold sits on top of um this huge table. And I think they leave it like that unsettled for a few days to get the right kind of um, ratio of mold to yeast and get to kind of get the right koji. And then I don't remember if they transfer that into a fermentation tank um, and add yeast to it. Um, I, but I, I'll have to look that up and um, get back to you on it. Yeah, we can follow up that on a, on a future episode too. And and yeah. and thinking about even you're talking about sake and a aspergillus orzea, I think is also what's used for uh, Chinese cooking wine. And so I think it's similar to sake. Only it's again it's again using rice. Um, so it was, uh, I, I'm pretty sure I used sticky rice when I did it, but maybe I didn't need to. But uh, but using rice and then and then putting just a little what's referred to or translated as a yeast ball, and then um, that can be had at different Asian grocery stores, markets and whatnot, and, and just crushing that up and putting it with rice and closing it and leaving it in a, in a incubated warmer space. And then, uh, then the liquid from that is probably relatively similar to the concept with, uh, with, with sake. I mean, it, it gets all fuzzy and then the liquid underneath, and then it's mildly alcoholic and it just adds another uh, punch of flavor for uh, pretty much just like using, um, cooking wines of, of any sort, but it, it has a unique mm-hmm. kind of flavor. Um, but it's, it's, I don't think it's, uh, is sake aged or is it like, is think, it, is it a longer process? Sake, I think good sake, um, is aged. I know they're the, uh, I mean, it come, there's a whole different range of sakes, the same as like with wine and beer, you know, you can have all different types of qualities. Um, but I think the really good stuff, the high end, you know, top shelf sake is aged. I don't know. I don't think it's aged in any sort of special barrel or anything like that. But um, I know aged sake is a lot smoother. It's not so harsh. So I'm me thinking about it from a scientific standpoint makes me think that it is somehow aged for a short period, of, at least for some period of time. 
Yeah, I I actually wonder now that we're talking about sake too, I, and and maybe we can add this into a future episode just on sake uh, it, because it is it does really kind of branch out. I mean, if we talk about sake, we'll be talking about miso, we'll be talking about soy sauce, we'll be talking because it's very interesting how all of these very similar processes got turned into relatively different products and mm-hmm. and kind of just how it evolved over time and looking at the history of all those kind of things and seeing where it started and it it does seem like a lot of it kind of started with the soy sauce side of things although i've seen other things that say it's kind of more the miso side so it'd be interesting to look into that at some point um but getting back to the the soy sauce i mean since it has been around for so long once it traveled to japan is when it really got uh, put on on the large scale in the 17th century. So we're talking about something that's been industrialized for quite a long time and, and not to the same, obviously not stainless steel um, vessels or different things in, in the 17th century, but uh, with a large operation, a lot of people and uh, in, in pots, large, huge pots. And, and a lot of this was because Japan had a lot of concentrated populations of people, a lot of, of large cities that, were demanding the soy sauce uh, or had, there was a demand for it. And so, you know, it was even to the extent that Japan was exporting to India and Southeast Asia and Europe in, in the late 17th century. And so soy sauce was a large scale product even back then. So yes, there are people that still ferment uh, soy sauce at home. Uh, the, the Japanese term for that would be shoyu, And, and I mean, for both commercial or for home done, but, uh, but shoyu is, is still made in the home, but it's not a difficult process. Like we kind of just talked about. And again, there'll be some notes in the, uh, in a video in the, in the show notes, uh, in, in directions for how to do it because it's, it's worth trying, but it is one of those things that's a little bit more difficult uh, or potentially time consuming, but I haven't tried it yet. So maybe it does actually taste better. So there might be more reason to do it because since things have gotten so big and there's only really about, um, four or five really large soy sauce makers in, in the world. And that has made it so that there has the, the economies of scale have made it so that there are, there's a lot more scientific understanding and technical ability. And, and that really started changing in the fifties. And, and that's when chemical soy sauce was, was introduced and that's not even fermented. Um, and, and I guess that would just be an enzymatic thing. I mean, using hydrochloric acid to break down the, the soy and create, get that liquid. And, well, that would just be like, um, a, a chemical process. Um, not even, I don't even think you would need to add enzymes if you're just adding hydrochloric acid to create soy sauce. Um, but this kind of brings up an interesting, um, point that is still on the side of fermentation. Um, because when they make what I believe when they make chemical, chemically made soy sauce, um, to get that like meaty flavor, that umami flavor that everyone associates with uh, soy sauce, they have, that's, um, MSG, um, which is usually derived from bacteria, um, in a fermentation. So they, I think they use hydrochloric acid at, to make the quote unquote soy sauce, but then they add back MSG for that, um, meaty full flavor. Does that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. And it just doesn't, it seems kind of uh, counterintuitive. Like that's where, yeah, that's where it, it doesn't, that's when the industry doesn't make sense. 
industry like on the large scale makes sense for a lot of things because it can make things more efficient. It can make it uh, less expensive to produce. It can make higher yields from the same amount. I mean, that's seems like a good thing for the most part. If, if you can get the same product from a mm-hmm. uh, few uh, less soybean, I mean, that seems, seems good for the environment and for people in general. But yeah, once it gets to being the chemical side of things to because it's faster, it cuts costs. And those are when it, that's when industry for me really kind of uh, loses its appeal, but that doesn't mean that that's what everyone's doing with, or that that's what the, these large scale companies are all doing. That's just one way. And I think I've only had chemical soy sauce once and it was disgusting, but it could have also been a different version of soy, uh, chemical soy sauce. Maybe that, maybe I've have had it otherwise. Um, but it was like a, a, a Chinese bottle of soy sauce and it could have been a different version, but it was like a little bit more uh, thick and it just didn't have much umami flavor to it. It just kind of had a disgusting, dark taste. I don't know how to describe oh. it. it. It was kind of gross. I, yeah. That doesn't really sound that great. Um, I don't know if I've ever had chemically derived soy sauce, but it just doesn't really sound good. Just chemi- chemical soy sauce. That doesn't sound that appetizing where it's when you're talking about Koji and, the the art behind making soy sauce then yeah i'll i'll have all that i'll i'll have that but um it's just really interesting how again the food industry can take something that has been made by humans for hundreds and thousands of years and chemically drive it to make the same product but faster cheaper more efficient um all to get the same quality and texture and you know cost saving wise it's it's just completely it's so interesting well and at least passable i guess i would say with especially with the chemical soy sauce it's passable maybe for for certain things and maybe i had a really really bad chemical uh, soy sauce maybe there's better ones out there that are better but it's passable for for the masses that don't really care and are just using mm-hmm. it as i mean especially if it's if it's mixed into something i mean if if people are trying soy sauce Right, maybe it's an ingredient for um, some other type of food that you wouldn't you need that flavor, but it doesn't have to be, um, you know, the expensive brand. It's kind of like cooking wine or cooking with wine. You don't use an expensive bottle of wine to cook with it. You drink the good stuff and then you use the not so great quality to cook with. Well, and that actually uh, was another part that I had looked into. I was like, okay, so if there's all this this large scale production of, of soy sauce and has been since the 17th century, there has to, there has to be someone somewhere in connecting it with, with wine or, or, or beer or anything else. It's the craft, the small batch soy sauce. And so I did a little bit of searching for that and I'm sure there are other ones, but I found one specifically in Kentucky that makes an um, American style soy sauce that they're aging in bourbon barrels down in Kentucky. So I, I'll put the New York times article in the, in the show notes as well. And the the interesting thing about that is that it does take more of the traditional, I would still say large scale or relatively large scale. I think they can do about 600 bottles a batch and, um, but it still takes months. It's still, it's, it's, it, and again, to emphasize like a lot of the large companies aren't necessarily doing the chemical soy sauce. That just is one option, one of the cheaper options, but soy sauce is pretty cheap anyway. So it's not, um, so, so this is, this is like the large scale ones, but it's on a little bit smaller scale. Probably again, I say go back in to more of the traditional style of doing it probably back in the 17th century, just a little bit more updated with a little bit more efficiency, probably even still. Um, mm-hmm. but I actually think that it, the, the, I also found one of those discovery channel or whatnot, how, how it's made episodes of five, five minute show on YouTube for 
uh, how soy sauce is made. And I, I'm pretty sure looking at the label that it is that same company that, that makes it from Kentucky. No, well, I can't think of, I don't have the, the name of the place in, in front of me, but it's just, it, but thinking about it as there are differences if soy sauce is approached differently, especially if it's aged in bourbon barrels or otherwise. But I mean, there's a lot of different ways. And so that is one vote for trying at least to make it at home. Maybe it's not something that someone would want to do regularly, but I at least want to try it just like I want to try and make miso, just like I've made a lot of attempts to make um, longer aged cheeses because it's the process for me. And sometimes, no, it doesn't have the the economies of scale. It might not even be much of a cost savings, especially something like soy sauce. I don't think someone's probably going to save a whole lot of money making it themselves, but it is kind of cool. Uh, it'd be a good project for a family to do, I think, because it's a pretty darn safe um ferment to do and you get to see the the fuzzy aspergillus orzea mold growing on top. I mean it's it's kind of nice when there's a really really fuzzy mold that's pretty white like that and harmless or relatively so. Right. Yeah, I think it's a really good learning opportunity for everyone to know that there are molds that are not bad for you. Like everyone just assumes that mold is bad for you. Um but that's a great example of something that is that benefits us and is a good mold that we should appreciate. Yeah, and it makes it releases the sugars from from rice, especially, and just makes it so sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of cool. Yeah, because like I, like I was talking about with that cooking wine, the Chinese cooking wine, the the rice is still edible, and it just it just is much sweeter. And huh, uh, interesting. Well, yeah. yeah, I'm gonna I'm interested in to try to try to make some soy sauce now here at my house. Um, I think it'd be really fun. Um, plus, it's always that going back again to just you know pride and what you make and you. I think that would just be really cool to show my friends and have my family come over and tell them like, Hey, I made this soy sauce. Yeah. And then try a blind tasting as well, just out of curiosity. And as, as long as your feelings won't be hurt if, if they choose the, the, the big name brand, but you know, try a couple blind taste and see if there's really a difference. And that's a really good idea. And even sneak in a chemical soy sauce and see if there is a difference and maybe try a few different ones too. That's, um, that's cruel. I mean, but, but yeah, I think that's a good idea. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe they're, I don't, I don't know. I've, I don't, I don't know if I've ever had chemically made soy sauce. So maybe that would be something I would want to try anyway. Um, and then not to change the topic too much, but when I was doing some research on industrial fermented um, foods as well, I, I mean, this might be very, I, I just assumed that um, hot sauce was never fermented, but I guess some types of hot sauce are. Do you know anything about that? Yeah. I forget which episode that was, that was in, uh, bef- before your time, we talked about Tabasco even. Uh, I didn't, oh, okay. I didn't even know that Tabasco is, well, a lot of the, is Tabasco Kentucky or, or is that another one of the Southern Louisiana, Louisiana, there we go. Yeah. Louisiana, yeah. the Louisiana style hot sauces are fermented and aged and, and they're still done that same way. When I think Tabasco, I don't think that small batch artisanal kind of thing. But when it, when I actually looked into how it was done and seeing the process, it's really kind of neat, but that's never like Tabasco just seems like a big brand hot sauce that everyone knows. It's like, a, yeah, I had an absolutely no idea. I, I mean, I knew that it was made of vinegar and cayenne pepper, but it, when it comes to fermentation, I, to me, it wasn't even in like the realm of fermentation. Um, well, and I think that, that you bring up a point about it, that usually the ingredients say whatever kind of peppers and then vinegar. And so that's why I always assumed as well. I was like, oh, this is just those two things mixed. But there, the Louisiana style hot sauce does include vinegar at the end. 
but it's the entire, I I'm pretty sure it's, if I remember correctly, uh, say for Tabasco, uh, um, a multi-year process of, of slow fermentation and mm. aging. And then the vinegar is added at the end. Um, yeah. Cause they don't, it, on the bottle, it doesn't even mention anything about any type of fermentation, which is also kind of interesting too, from an industrial standpoint. And you would see this, I mean, obviously there are well-known fermented foods like yo- different types of yogurts and cheeses and, um, you know, sauerkrauts and that sort of thing. But there's a lot of things that are fermented. Um, and due to, uh, not, I don't want to say lack of labeling, but just differences in laws, laws and labeling, you don't have to say if it was fermented or not. Cause I would, I had, I had no idea. Totally blew my mind. Tabasco sauce. And well, and that's an interesting thing in, in probably when we focus more on a history uh, topic at one point, I mean, it, it's, it is kind of the perception of people in different, uh, different ethnic communities and uh, regionally the acceptance of fermented things or not. I mean, I think that nowadays, and there probably are Tabascos that do market and promote the fact that they're fermented. At one point, it wouldn't have been something that people would have necessarily in the United States even cared to know or might have not appreciated the same way as whereas now it's like, oh, that's actually I, I for myself, Tabasco being such a, a large industrial company, I would I would say in many ways, they still do things on a small scale kind of concept. And and since it does they're not trying to skip steps of fermentation, which a lot of hot sauces can and doing it in more of the traditional Louisiana hot, uh, hot sauce style is something that I appreciate. And so it's, it's interesting market um, acceptance of fermented versus not fermented. And I guess just because there's no way around certain things like yogurt or cheese or sauerkraut. But then again, a lot of people, it's not necessarily the thing that's pushed looks with sauerkraut on the shelf. Uh, it, it's not necessarily, or, or was not until probiotics started becoming a big thing that, that people right. even started, uh, wanting to know if something was fermented or not and whether or not it was pasteurized and, and, uh, alive or not. And, and so now it's becoming something that people are interested in and on a, a health wise thing. I'm, I, I don't think anyone's really focusing on, on hot sauce necessarily too much. And I don't, I don't know if there's any data out on that at all, but I mean, it is, I'm pretty sure the, the vinegar stops any fermentation or aliveness in the, in the product afterwards anyway, but still it's, for me, it's, it's cool. And it, it, that's what gives it its unique flavor. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, it's, it's funny because I think in the past few years, um, a lot more, uh, at least in California, there's a larger per- push for, um, having everything labeled that you buy, um, in the grocery store. Um, I know here, I, I'm sure it's with all whole foods, but here, especially the, um, there's a huge push for, um, GMO testing or GMO food components, um, to be labeled onto food products. Um, and a lot of, if you go to the farmer's markets here, they have an, a list of ingredients that you can, that you can ask for when you go to say the sausage man or the, um, the sauerkraut man or whoever it is that has fermented food. And he, they have a detailed list of, um, not only the ingredients, but the type of bacteria or yeast specifically used to make that fermented product. So I think that, I mean, in the next few years, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more of a push um, on food labeling in in that regards of having everything put down instead of just not necessarily omitting that it was fermented for, say, hot sauce, um, but it'll put in there that it was fermented using these types of bacterias or organisms. 
And now the question will be is, will that regulation get to the point of if something was, say, involved a genetically modified microorganism, would it necessarily have to be on the label still if it wasn't in the final product? Or I wonder where those kind of things will, where the lines will be be drawn. Yeah, it's it's a gray area. I mean, it's yeah, it just kind of depends. I I I'm interested to see what how how this is going to be handled. Um, cause I know it is an issue here. Um, I see it all the time whenever I go to the grocery store, um, more in-depth food labeling, but yeah, I guess it does depend is at what point do you draw the line of this was this GMO organism was used or this food, something, whatever GMO was used, but it's not in the product now, but I, I don't know. Is there a way that you can test that it's not there anymore? Well, that's I'm sure a- there is a way but I don't know what it would be. Well, that that's the thing that becomes difficult too, is like, well, what, what are industrial food producers going to be willing to release? So as if, if something doesn't have to be on a label or, or if there's, if they, if it can't be detected, is it possible? I mean, I'm not saying that it, it, there's conspiracy or, or whatnot, but I mean, a lot of this is proprietary information. I mean, if, if some of these things, if it's part of what's creating those, those, those flavor components that make something the way it is. Some of this information wants, understandably is, is guarded because it's, it's, uh, it's information for, for it's, it's money-making information for the, for the companies using it. So yeah, it becomes becomes one of those very hard things about like how much, how much should a company be required to release? Whereas it seems that's also why I like small scale uh, artisanal producers of things because not always, definitely not always by any means, but a lot of times people are a lot more, uh, or at least give the perception of being more open. And I, I like that because I think the more that everyone knows, the better everything becomes. And, and I'm kind of more of for artisanal products or whatnot. A competition is a real thing and I don't make any artisanal products myself. So I probably am not one to say, but I'd say for myself, it's like, I'm, I much rather frequent artisanal producers of things and purchase their products. Um, if it's more of a community kind of thing, it's like, let's, let's make everyone's products better as opposed to trying to guard things and keep it closed off and proprietary. I mean, open source, all food processes. And that's, that's kind of my mindset with that. No, I can see. I mean, I, I'm more on your page, but I can see how, um, larger food industries who have developed, have a, a brand and a name for themselves, um, want to keep certain things proprietary just so that it doesn't, so their food is still unique and people still go to them to, instead of some other place that has a, a product that's very good, but there's something that they get attached to with, um, you know, the big name products where they have put the proprietary information and, um, that sort of thing. I mean, everyone has a, say everyone has a hot sauce that they like better than a different type of hot sauce. Um, so I'm sure that the fermentation used or the process used is slightly different. And that's again, going back to proprietary information that no one wants to share. So it, then it gets a little bit of like, a, um, harder to share information that way. Cause you kind of have to be tight lipped about how you make something depending on what, I mean, artisanal, artisanal people, like if you're making something at home, I'm happy to share how I did this process or what, how I made it with my friends or with anyone but I'm also not making any money off of it. I'm doing it just for fun. 
Yeah, that's that's a hard thing about uh, having any kind of commentary on this is because, yeah, I mean, the, even on a small scale, people are trying to to make money. And if they have something that differentiates them and and the thing that on the small scale, people don't have that the large scale industry foods do uh, is, is the same kind of marketing budget. And so, you know, it's like even if even if all of this stuff eventually had to be released and people had to know everything that was in it, what the process was, the large companies would still have their their branding and their marketing which from taste testing and otherwise shows sometimes that's just as important as the secret ingredients or the secret process or the the final flavor of things and uh, it tastes is such a interesting thing and in, in what people are drawn to and um you know i mean that's some of the questions of home versus industrial food fermented foods as well is uh is in regard to is it something that when it's made at home sometimes tastes better like we've talked about before, how it just tastes better because all that, that sweat and tears and love put into it that, uh, that I know I made something. And so I like it better than the store-bought version just on that merit alone. Whereas if I did a blind taste with them, I mean, maybe I would like the chemical soy sauce over my soy sauce, but Mm -hmm. uh, in my mind, if I ever knew that it was the chemical soy sauce, then I would absolutely never, I would, I, I, it just wouldn't be something that I would, I would like better. But if I don't know, and I have nothing to compare it to besides uh, besides just a blind tasting, then sometimes things can be different. Yeah. No, I mean, that's a good point. Um, it's And it's interesting to think about. And we'll, we may have to have an entire episode dealing with um, the labeling issues and uh, talk more in depth about that. Because um, it's an interesting topic. And I mean, I don't think there's ever a clear solution or a clear answer. And it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next few years when it comes to labeling and GMOs and people sharing information like that. That's very proprietary. Yeah. It, and it seems that if you've got that legislation and different such going through that you're probably going to see a lot more with labeling on your side of things before necessarily the rest of the country catches up. It kind of sounds like. But um, yeah, so you'll you'll be an interesting test test area to, to find out what all this is like. Yeah. I'll keep you guys updated. Um, but moving on about, um, industrialization of fermented foods and stuff. I, when I was doing some research, I also found, um, and I had known of this, I had taken a class in school that dealt with biotechnology and using microorganisms, but I didn't, I, it, the class was mostly focused on, um, like biofuels um, that can be used for your cars. And I think I've mentioned this or briefly discussed it um, in a few episodes. Um, But when it came to um, food, I found some really interesting things that I I had known, but yet forgot about and wanted to mention them again. Um, But they have um, been using microorganisms to produce stabilizing and viscosity properties. So even though you might have, um, let's say this could, this may or may not be true, but like icing, if you go to the grocery store and buy icing, um, it has a certain consistency or like whipped factor to it. And they may have added some, um, uh, stabilizers or, um, components that make it more, um, uh, thicker, um, to last longer that have been produced through microorganisms. So there's foods out there that we, again, probably didn't even realize that um, they're, they have fermented components in them. That were created by microorganisms, you're saying? Yeah, they're created by microorganisms. They've just figured out a way to, I don't want to say manipulate, but that's the best word I can think of, 
uh, manipulate their biochemical pathways to get an overproduction of a certain compound that they would wouldn't necessarily make um, on average uh, like they normally would if they were just naturally living and surviving in nature. Um, but they uh, and those aren't GMOs; those are just uh, finding different ways to manipulate their biochemical pathways to get an over of a certain compound. Um, so, I think so probably synonymous with the going with plants. I mean, looking at um, hybridizing or just uh, se- selecting for um, bigger or faster growing or, or different kinds of fruits and vegetables. I mean, similar in that kind of way of just like alt- like putting a human hand to it, but not in a uh, weird Frankenstein kind of way. Exactly. It's exactly like that. Um, because the, the, the specific example that I found that I found really interesting, um, was that, uh, meat producers who are making, um, different types of fermented meats, like sausages and salamis and stuff like that. Sometimes they can use pediococcus species to produce, um, what are called bacteriosins. Um, and we can talk about this in more detail at some other time, but, um, they produce a peptide um, naturally that is that can inhibit other types of microbes, and they can over they can use biotechnology to get the pediococcus to overproduce or produce a lot of um, these naturally producing peptides, and then they can add it to um, sausages um, or meats and stuff to reduce spoilage, which I thought was pretty interesting. And what is it about? Are peptides in general uh, mole or spoilage inhibitors, or is there something specific about these peptides? I think it's just this specific type of peptide. Um, I don't know for sure if if I if it's if it's always peptides um, or or um, something else. I'd have to do some research into it, but I'll I'll look it up and do some you know get back to you on it. Okay. And just out of curiosity too, just stepping it back, I guess, even farther than that for, for people that peptides, do you have a quick, simple description of what that is? Peptides are, um, they're like proteins. They're precursors to make proteins. Okay. So just an, um, another part of it's, it's a, it's a waste product of these different microorganisms that are doing that then, or, or I think it's more of a protective mechanism for the bacteria itself. But they can figure. Uh, scientists have figured out a way to overproduce the peptide, um, so they can concentrate it and then use it for other other things. Um, so they're kind pep- of almost like superhero microorganisms at that point. They've got these super shields of sorts. Yeah, yeah. It's more of a protective that they use to protect themselves from other harmful bacteria, which inhibits um, that inhibits other types of bacteria from growing. Uh, yeast do it sometimes, um, in winemaking. Um, it's called the kill factor protein. I guess maybe it is always proteins. Cause it seems as if my examples that I can think of are always protein based anyway, but yeast do produce certain types of yeast produce these, this kill factor protein that inhibits other yeast strains from growing. So the yeast strain can dominate in the fermentation. Um, and that can be a problem when you're making fermentation wine. Um, mo- most of that stuff is known and to winemakers beforehand. So you have to just be careful of what yeast strains you use in co-inoculations or um, primary fermentation and then secondary fermentation in winemaking. But it's important to know that because they do produce certain types of peptides or other components that are um, 
inhibitory to other bacteria or yeast. We need to do an episode on that so that we can title something the kill protein or or what was it? The kill protein, right? The the kill factor protein. The kill factor protein. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we just have to have a title of an episode of that at some point and just do it all on yeah. that. It's just it's microorganisms are hardcore. They're they're pretty tough and they cool. They are. And, yeah. And it's just an interesting example of um even though you may not necessarily think of something at like as a food be a food being fermented, it it probably isn't, but it might have some components of other fermented foods in it. Um, and then it goes back to the whole labeling thing and all of, and whatnot. But, um, I mean, we could keep going on for hours about this. Well, and I think that's the thing is we don't have this episode. I think we're going to have to wrap up for, for, for this one and, and just continue this discussion as a part two on next episode, uh, and, and continue on the discussion because I've got some things about African indigenous beers and, and then looking more at yogurts and, and, and sauerkrauts as well, things people are more familiar with, and then and kind of bringing it all back to, to home ferments and, and what it means industry versus, versus home. Um, but I think we're going to have to call it an episode for this time. And I think that you had something you wanted to uh, share, like a fermentation happening coming up. Oh, yeah, yeah. I just recently, this past weekend, um, I went to the Museum of Man here in San Diego. Um, just randomly, um, I was taking, I have some family visiting. Um, so I took him there to go see some other exhibit. It had to do with human life, I think. Um, but when I got in there, they had a beerology, that's what it's called, exhibit, talking about yeast and brewing beer and fermentation and the history behind it, um, which I think we're, I think we should have an episode about the history of fermentation, but that's for episodes to come. Um, but if if anyone's in the San Diego area or in Southern California, you should definitely check out the Museum of Man. I think the Beerology exhibit is going on until, um, I want to say January or February. Um, and if you're here, you should check out too and go on a specific day when they're having a happy hour um, because they have a working kegerator there with all sorts of local brews and stuff. So um, unfortunately, I didn't even know that this was going on. Otherwise, I would have gone for the happy hour. But I think they have um, some local brewers there during those happy hours that you can talk to them and learn more about um, the history of fermentation. Now, is that something where you might have taken some photos of that we could put a blog post about if for those of us that aren't in the San Diego area? Oh, sure. I can definitely. I have a few pictures. I'm sure I can go back and take some more. It's just down the street for me. And um, I, I mean, yeah, I would go pay to pay in to see it again. I didn't have the chance to fully explore it um, the way I wanted to just because I had family in town. We had, you know, there's always lots of people doing, wanting to do lots of different things, but um, I'll definitely take some pictures or find a, find an avenue or someone that can give us more information about it. Yeah, that'd be great. I mean, especially for since um, hopefully there's some people listening to this that, that can go and, and then for everyone else, they at least can get a, a taste of it or a, oh, a, yeah. a visual of it. Um, and then, uh, oh, uh, one other update is just in regard to where you can get in contact with us from it. And, and it's on Google plus, we actually finally have a, a, a name that's easy to say, and it's google.com slash plus firm up. And, uh, so if you use Google plus, you should check us out there because I know there's more people on, on Facebook. There's very few people that use the Google plus thing, but that's also because the Google plus ID was 20 digits of numbers as opposed to being able to say plus firm up. So now you can find us there as well. But in general, you can always find us at Facebook at FirmUp, on Twitter at FirmUp, 
And uh, you can also send us an email at podcast at firmup.com and both of us uh, will get this and either of us could respond to you and we're happy to do so. And so do you have any parting words of wisdom? I, I don't. I'm just excited about this next episode to continue talking about industrial fermentation. I'm, I think it'll we can continue on. Someone never-ending uh, story. Never-ending story on industrial fermentation. And until then, keep firming it up.